We really do appreciate the, the privilege to be a part of what God is doing in the world. The guys standing up here with the brackets were uh, your elders, along with our new associate pastor, Ryan Jorgensen. Uh, you'll be glad to know Ryan flew back to Iowa this week, picked up his family and trucked them down here. And so the Jorgensen family here in Jacksonville, I'm really glad to have him. Very much appreciate the service that our elders give to this local body of believers. We're blessed by what they do. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, whether hard copy or a, a copy on your mobile device, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. If you are visiting or new, we are looking at the life of Jesus and have been doing so for a long time, since Easter of 2017, actually. And we are in the final week in the life of Jesus. And it's going to be a lot of weeks that we're in the final week because the Gospels record the most about the final week about anything in the life of Jesus. So we're up to Tuesday in the final week in the life of Jesus. Thus far, in this final week, we have seen what it would be to elevate Jesus in our city as Jesus was elevated as he entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. When he came into Jerusalem, the gospels say the whole city was buzzing about this question, who is Jesus? And it really captured my own heart of how might we live in such a way that this city would be buzzing with the question of who is Jesus? And so we identified five very simple, very practical ways in which we would live in this city so that Jesus would be lifted up. And we simply called it Elevating Through Bless, this acronym that we'd begin with prayer for those who are not yet trusting in Jesus. So whether that's your family, co-workers, neighbors, folks who play on sports teams with your kids, that as you intersect with those who are not yet in relationship with Jesus, you'd begin praying for them. Are you, think personally now, are you, are you praying for anybody specifically on a regular basis that God has placed in your sphere of influence? Next, that we would then engage in conversation, not so much to speak, but to listen. That we would hear what they are thinking, what they believe, how they came to those conclusions. That we would eat with them, serve them, and share our story and his story. Now, this is all quick review. That's why I'm flying through it. But, but look up here, if you would. We didn't make this up. This was the pattern that Jesus lived by when he was on the planet. When, when you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus always beginning with prayer and then eating with people, listening to people, serving people, sharing his story, sharing the gospel, sharing the truth of the Father with him. So we would simply say, hey, we can live as Jesus lived in this way and lift up Jesus in this city. Then we looked the last four weeks at the final questions. The text very specifically says there were four final questions that were asked of Jesus. The question of his authority, the question of taxes, the question of the resurrection, and then the question of the goat, the greatest of all time commandment, which was to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The, now that was all Tuesday morning. 
on those final questions. And now a next encounter on Tuesday is Jesus encountering givers. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. So let's start in verse 41. And he sat down, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Now I need you to stop already. Because Mark just painted a picture that people in his time would have completely understood, but we're clueless. Because when we think if Jesus observing people giving, we think, oh, church service, aisles, ushers, offering plates, that's not at all what was happening here. In the picture that Mark is painting here, we'd go to Jerusalem as every Jewish person would to worship God, and they would come to the Temple Mount. This is an artist's depiction of what they would have seen in Jesus' day. And these outer courts, this side, this side, was what was referred to as the court of the Gentiles. Jewish folks and Gentiles could both be in this court. A Gentile could not go beyond the court, though, of the Gentiles. This, this large structure here, is the central on the Temple Mount. It is the holy place and inside it, the Holy of Holies. And what's happening is in the central, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest can go. In the holy place, only priests can go. And in this court, so that's that area there. In this court right in here is called the court of women. Not because it's only women, it's only Jewish men or women. So concentric circles, but squares. <laughs> in here, court of Gentiles, only Jews, men and women. Then up the steps, only men inside the holy place, only priest inside the holy of holies, only the high priest. So you got that picture? All right, so now back to, if you walk in this, so if you would have walked in these gates into the holy excuse me, to the court of women, you would have this open area with then this covered section around the whole perimeter. And under that covered section, there would have been spread throughout 13 trumpet-shaped, wide at the top, narrow at the bottom, 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles by which the Jewish people would make their offerings into these trumpet-shaped receptacles. 13 of them spread around the court of women. This is where Jesus is in Mark 12, and this is where he is observed. So that picture in your head, back to the text. He sat down opposite the treasury, so opposite of where they are giving, and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in what? Large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Very easy to picture. Think smaller than a penny and worth half of it. So smaller than a penny. She puts two in. She puts in a full cent into the treasury. Calling his disciples to him. So he's watching. He sees this and he calls them and he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors, excuse me, to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. So Jesus, in this encounter, it's recorded by Mark, what he observed, what he saw, 
and then what he said. So uh, let's break that down. First, what did Jesus see? What did he observe? And we'll simply answer the investigative questions. Who? Who did he see give at the treasury? What the te- what's the text say? He saw rich people give and, and poor people. So the rich and the poor are both giving. Second investigative question, how much does he see them giving? Well, it's a wide range. He sees the widow give a penny, and then he sees rich folks who will give large sums. So it's a wide variety from a penny to large sums. But what's interesting about this text is Mark says he not only was observing how much they gave, it says he was observing how they gave. So what did he say in response to what he observed about how they gave? Well, it says that he saw some of them, how they gave was out of surplus. They had extra. They had discretionary, if you will, stuff that wasn't already earmarked. It was they gave out of their surplus, but the poor widow, how did she give? It says very specifically, she gave out of her poverty. So he sees rich and poor, large sums down to a penny, some out of surplus, the individual out of poverty. But why did they give it? Well, you had, remember, 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles for which they could give the offering. Two of those 13 were there to collect the temple tax, which every Jewish person, when they came to the temple, they'd have to pay a temple tax. So two of those receptacles were for the temple tax. Seven of the receptacles were to receive payment for an offering that the priest would make. So they would put in an offering in in form of a payment for that offering. So they'd put coins in for that. Four of the receptacles were for a voluntary gift. So it's two for the temple tax, seven for the payment of an offering, four a voluntary gift. Now, what does the text say the reason why they gave? Do you see it there in verse 42? No, you don't. You don't. It doesn't say. This is one of the questions. It does not. It does not tell us why. It only tells us what he observed, and then it doesn't say why they gave. It only tells us what Jesus then said based on what he observed. And he said, "The rich should have given more than what they what they had given." Yeah, don't write that one down. Okay, it doesn't say the rich should have given more. Does it say that the gifts of the poor were worth more than the gifts of the rich? Careful. It doesn't say worth more. It says gave more. Folks, if you would have taken what the widow had put in and taken what the, the rich folks had put in, what would get you further at Publix? What the rich had put in. The people of Publix would go, uh, thanks for the penny, but that's not getting you anything. And yet Jesus said, she gave, what was it? She gave more. That's, that's what Jesus said. So we're going to have to unpack that in a moment. 
Uh, third, Jesus said, everyone should give all they have like the widow gave all she had. It doesn't say that. Now, I, I make those points because oftentimes somebody can read a passage and they say, well, Jesus said these things. And it does not say. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago and I want to reinforce. When somebody says, you know, when the Bible says this, what's the first thing you should do? You got to pull out your Bible and really read what they are saying the Bible says. Because actually people say things close to what the Bible says. But it's important to see exactly what it says. So let's go back. What did Jesus say? He said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury for they, here's why it was more, not because it was worth more, but for a different reason. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. So in what way was it more if it wasn't more in terms of amount? It was a far greater sacrifice. And Jesus is teaching us that you and I tend to measure generosity by zeros. How many zeros were on that gift? Wow, that person's really generous. Ah, that was, it was a good gift. I mean, it wasn't great. But more zeros usually makes us think more generous, not Jesus. Jesus measures generosity how? By the size of the sacrifice, not the size of the gift. That's just radically different. It's the size of... Of the sacrifice. In other words, you could say it this way, and I know you're trying to write a whole sentence down, so just fill in a blank. But it's as if Jesus is saying she gave more because she left with less. The impact on her was far greater. Theirs was surplus. Nothing was going to be impacted on their lifestyle because of what they gave, but she was going to be greatly impacted. So he gives us a completely different view of generosity. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there anything strange about this encounter of what Jesus does here and what Jesus says that makes you go, wow, that's really unusual? No? Okay, well, so next week, here's what we plan to do. During the offering, I'm going to, when the men come forward with the plate, I'm going to meet them here and when the plate starts going down the row, I'm going to follow it. And I'm going to follow each one. And then when it gets to you, and you folded your check, I'm going to reach over, unfold the check, check the amount, fold it back up, and send it on. Now, is that what Jesus did? Yes, it is. Why do you say no? Read the passage. And Jesus was at the treasury observing how they gave and he identified exactly how much they gave. He was watching. So next week. Now, if I was going to do that next week, what would you do? What would you do? <laughs> I got this golf. I can't quite make it. 
be skipping big time. I know you would. Because you think, no, 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 no. Hey, if I reached in your air, slap my hand. This is, this is a highly unusual encounter that you guys just kind of went right through, but you're going, Jesus literally watched person by person and how they gave and how much they gave. You don't go for that. But this whole series has been, we need to be more like Jesus. So next week, we'll be more like Jesus. You've never wanted more in your life for me to not be more like Jesus. Right? This is just really, really. In fact, what strikes me about this encounter is that it is so far different than the way we go out of our way at the chapel to go about observing giving. Oftentimes, and it's not true in every church, but oftentimes when anybody gives a significant gift, that's immediately told to the pastor and the pastor then follows up and we got to build community and build relationship. You need to know if you don't know this, I have no, and I mean zero knowledge of who gives and if you do give, how much you give. I've never been told, never will be told, none of the elders, the only, except for one who, ha, because of his job requirement, he has to know for reporting purposes who gives. The rest of the guys who are standing up here, myself, we go out of our way to do the opposite of what Jesus just did. And we do it for good reason. We do it because the scripture warns against favoring the rich. Those who we think have capacity to be, as we define it, generous. And so to protect ourselves, we don't know. And we're not changing that because of this text. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For those in South, we had one lame applause to my left right over here. <laughs> no, we, we won't. But it did force me to ask a question. If Jesus observed giving at CFC, if he did here what he did there, what would he see? And so, without finding out any information, without knowing anything more than what I've already told you, I asked the question. So, to our bookkeeper, tell me, what would Jesus observe? And here's what I got. That if Jesus in 2017 would have observed giving at CFC, he would have observed that 75.2% of our member households gave to CFC. I don't know what that number does to you. It's kind of interesting. I look at your faces and you've never been fixated on the TV like this before in your life. How about 2018? 63. So far in this year, 63.1% of our member households have given to CFC. 
Now, again, if you think, he's looking at me funny. I'm not. I'm not looking at anybody funny because I have zero insider information here. I genuinely have no idea who the 75% are and the 25% are. But if Jesus was urban, he would, this is what he would have seen. Again, I don't know what you would say about that, but I do want us to see what the New Testament would say about that right there. The New Testament, what God would say about that, because that's what happens in this counter. He observes something and then he, he says something. So this would be his observation of Christian Family Chapel. What might he say? Well, when it comes to what God has said, has said, already previously said to his church, a couple verses, Galatians 6, 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. What God has said to his church is on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So they weren't passing on a weekly basis, but the instruction was that each person would prepare on a weekly basis so that when the collection came, they weren't called off guard and unprepared or not ready. So he said, do something weekly regularly so that you'd be ready when the collection is made. And then 2 Corinthians 9, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what has God said to his church? (laughs) That giving is the privileged responsibility of every, two important words, Every and believer. See, we didn't measure it by who a believer and a non-believer because we don't have the capacity to know every person who attends CFC if they're a believer or not. We only measured it against membership because to become a member of Christian Family Chapel, you have to give a public, personal profession of faith within the context of the class. Did you know that? Some of you are going, I'm never going. Right now, it's just a second hour. I was greeted a class that's starting. Over 40 folks are gone. I want to discover church membership at CFC. Part of that class will be them making a public profession. So my point is this. We measured it against membership, but the New Testament measures it against if you're a believer or not a believer. Our members, those who choose to join, sign a covenant saying, yes, I understand that part of our responsibility, our privilege as a member is to share in the resources of the local church, to give to the local church. So that is why we measured against membership. But the New Testament says, hey, it's not a matter of whether you're a member here or not. It's a matter of whether... You have trusted in Jesus to be your personal savior. You've been born again that you've believed in him to pay your debt so that you would go from an enemy of God, separated from God, to made one with God through faith, not by works. If you have done that, trusted in Jesus, then the New Testament says it is your privileged responsibility to participate in whatever local church you align with member or not. Now, 
I recognize right now, there are, your minds are like all over the place. Some of you are visitors and you're going, seriously? I finally came to church and they're talking about money. Church, always talking about money. So I need our long-term regular attenders and members to answer this question. Do we always talk about money at the chapel? No. <laughs> Clearly not enough. <laughs> no, we really, really don't. So if you're going, ah, oh, why? Well, you just chose poorly. That's all I can say. <laughs> now, you didn't choose poorly. As you'll see in a moment, you chose really, really well. But this is not a consistent thing that we're always talking about money. Some of you are really concerned, though, like, oh, this really stretches me. And you are feeling a little bit of potential conviction or question or you're wrestling. And I want to simply, without shrinking back, say there's not a single one of us who would go, yes, if I said to you 63.1% of our marriages are practicing fidelity. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd not be good. And it's no better that six, than 63% of us are participating in the privileged responsibility of giving. So the question... The investigative question in the encounter was, who gave? Well, in the encounter, we saw the rich and the poor. The investigative question here at the chapel was, who gave? Well, 63% so far in 2018. Uh, I want us to go back to the last question that the text didn't answer, the question of why. And I want to go there because what the, question, the, the why question that the encounter does not answer, listen, the New Testament very powerfully and clearly answers why it is the privileged responsibility for every believer. And the answer is as clear as how the church began. If you were to take your Bible and start reading through your New Testament, the first four books would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they would tell the story of the person and work of Jesus Christ. How he lived, how he died, how he was buried, how he rose again and ascended into heaven. It would tell the story of how Jesus told his disciples that I'm gonna go away, but don't be troubled. It's actually to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, then I will send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you. That's what the Gospels would tell you. The next letter, the book of Acts, would begin with the followers of Jesus waiting in Jerusalem for what Jesus had said, had promised would happen, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. And in Acts chapter 2, it happens. The Holy Spirit comes upon those who are waiting, and when he comes upon them, they begin to speak in languages that they had never learned to speak. And it creates such a stir in Jerusalem because they begin to hear people who don't know their language speak their language, that a large crowd gathers, and Peter stands up and preaches his first sermon. And he declares the truth about who Jesus was and what he had done and what they had done. You have crucified him. 
And they are, the Bible says, Acts chapter two says, they are cut to the heart and they literally cry out, what do we need to do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. And the response is this, Acts chapter two, verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, how old is the church? (laughs) less than a day old, and there are already over 3,000 new believers. How are they going to function as a church with that sort of growth? Well, it says next verse, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they said, tell us what Jesus said to you. So the apostles began to teach as Jesus had taught them. And to fellowship, meeting together, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed, don't miss that, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. So you see, as soon as the church began, what immediately happened when the church began? People started sharing with one another according to whatever the need was. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking to the temple. They come across a guy who cannot walk. He's lame. He's asking for money. They say, we don't have any. Why not? Because they had been sharing it. They said, we don't have any money, but we have this. We have Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, we stand up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And again, a huge crowd gathers because when a person who can't walk walks, that makes people talk. So there's this huge crowd gathered, and what's Peter do? Preaches a second sermon. This time, though, as he's preaching, the authorities who are unhappy with what he's doing, they show up, and he gets arrested while preaching. Imagine going to, uh, years ago to a Billy Graham crusade, and the police come in and arrest him. That would change the altar call. But in this situation, they arrest them, and... Acts 4 says, but many of those who had heard the message believed. They didn't run afraid. They believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000, even greater than the first. So now we have a, the church in Jerusalem, over 8,000 people. How are they possibly going to function? Verse 32 of Acts 4, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Remember the last... In Acts 2, they were of one mind. Here they are of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. 
folks, do you, do you see the, the sharing happening? Did you see it? Profoundly, yes. Why? Why was it happening? What was underneath? What was the motive for their giving? It was the practical and tangible expression of the fact that they were now one in Christ. The tangible and practical expression of their oneness in Christ. Listen, I think so often when we think about becoming a a believer in Jesus, we recognize that we were separated from God, but we become vertically, we become reconciled one with him. But just as powerfully, just as powerfully as you have become through faith in Jesus, one with God, you have become one with each other. And that reality powerfully impacted how people operated immediately in the church. They started ripping their name off of their stuff and said, hey, it's not my stuff anymore, it's our stuff. It wasn't communism, it wasn't forced upon them, it was voluntary contribution where they said, hey, we are one. So giving, the why question, Why would every believer see it as their privileged responsibility to share? It's because of our oneness in Christ. It's because at core, not theoretically, but genuinely true, we are family. See, do you believe that? It makes a difference whether you think that or not. Do you really think you're family? Because sometimes it's like, well, we got Thursday night and three hours on Sunday. We got two venues. We got all these. uh, But do you have family who attends Thursday night? Do you have family who attends eight o'clock? Do you have family who are in the other auditorium right now? Yes? Yes. You are one with them. And it's that oneness that prompted giving. And if you have family in the path of Hurricane Florence this past weekend. Any of you? Few of you? We certainly did. Uh, Some of our kids live in South Carolina, Jackie's family. Uh, Some are in Myrtle Beach. And so they were right in the path of the storm. I don't know if you did this, but we sent out a text, said, hey, if you're in the path and you need a place to go, sounds weird to escape a hurricane to go to Florida. But if you need a place to go, you can come to our house. And our kids were like, ah, we're not leaving. We've done this before. We're just going to ride it out. But Jackie's sister, who's here in this third hour, and her husband, Rod, and some family members here, they were in Myrtle Beach and said, hey, we'll come. And we're bringing our two pets. Which, by the way, was not part of the text, if you read it carefully. <laughs> just play it. So they came. Friday, we had to, because I had to teach in Tallahassee yesterday, uh, we left Friday late afternoon and they came in Friday evening, stayed at our house and last night they were pulling up some pictures of what's happening in Conway, the little town they live in outside and seeing some houses that they recognize flooding. So really grateful. Did I send that text to everybody in South Carolina and North Carolina? (laughs) Of course not. Send it to who? 
family. Because that's what, what's our expression? That's what, that's what family does. And, and it's mutual. Got back from Tallahassee uh, a little bit before five o'clock and I walk in, you know what's waiting on our counter? For ready, not yet cooked, but ready for dinner? There's rolls and potatoes and Angus ribeyes. <laughs> and I, so I was like, whoa, Angus ribeyes. I don't buy these. These, these are the good ones. And so I got to cook them up and then we're sitting around the table. I was like, man, these things are awesome. I said, man, we, I thank you so much. And Cindy's at the table, Jake says, said that exact thing, remember? It's what family does. Folks, I, I genuinely hate that there's this whole idea of, oh, he's teaching on giving. Oh. Somebody said to me last hour, well, why didn't you give this one to the new associate? <laughs> Make him do the giving message. Folks, that's not what I think. I think one of the greatest privileges is to be able to share with you there is a profound spiritual reality that does not make giving something that I got to come in here and pry your fingers off your stuff. Because I would stink if I had to do that. Uh, if I got to pry your fingers off stuff, then Ryan, you're up. <laughs> but if we can come in here and go, we're a family, and we all know what family does for one another, then uh, we go, and I'm glad, I'm glad I visited this morning. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm part of Christian Family Chapel. You see, let's change our focus. We genuinely need to get this stupid, wrong idea out of our mind that giving is some sort of God tax that we got to pay so then we feel good about how we spend the rest of our stuff. And instead go, no, we are family and we are family because we have been given. Oh man, put it in caps, underline it, because we've been given grace. I mean, let's just stop and go, why'd we all get together this morning? <laughs> really, why'd we all get together this morning? Because we have a fundamental need for what only God could do for us in Christ. We're not here because we're a bunch of people who are good enough. We're here because none of us could ever be good enough and never will be good enough. And only because of what God has done for us in Jesus could we be saved. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't deserve it. And we can't pay it back. But we're here because of grace. And grace has made us family. And because we're family, we don't have to pry our fingers off of stuff because of grace. <laughs> What we did, we didn't pry our fingers off our stuff. We ripped our name off of our stuff and we said, it's not mine and it's ours. This is an incredible privilege. And I hate that lots of us have grown up being, you know, get my God tax. 
I got an allowance as a little kid, a dollar a week. But you know how they gave it to me? Dimes. And they were there making sure that one dime went in the piggy bank and one dime went in the offering plate. And then the other 80 cents was mine. paid my God tax. That is just not the motivation that spills out of the New Testament. The motivation that spills out of the New Testament is that grace has made us family. And because of that, we have the incredible privilege to give. So, We're going to take a second offering. No, I'm just playing. (laughs) Come on. If I was, I'd be a lot more subtle than that. No, we're not. Far more powerful. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Because nothing screams grace more than the broken crackers, the reminder of the body of Christ and the cup of juice that reminds us of the blood of Christ, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might, we, we might become children of God, family. That's grace. So guys, come and I'm gonna invite you to pass. We're gonna take it together in a moment. But as it's passing, Matt's going to simply declare the the fundamental, phenomenal truth of grace over us. I, I hope the words of this song will just wash you with grace and then we'll take together.
that gets sticky with our stuff. And just know that the, the greatest cure to the, the stickiness of my own heart is grace. That I can pry it off for a little bit, but whew, boy, those fingers will come back. But when my heart is washed, that I've been loved and blessed and given to, that's what happens. And then my name gets ripped off and hands get opened up and I go, how can a person who's received such grace get so stingy? How is that? So I lost sight of grace. So this is what we need, friends. We need a reminder of that which has been done for us totally undeserved. That God has loved us. Christ has died for us. The Spirit has been poured into our hearts so that we might walk in newness of life. That we might cry out, Abba, Father, and brother, sister, sons and daughters of God. as recipients of grace, would you take with me in gratitude? Spirit of God, we invite you to wash our hearts. Wash away the fear that sometimes causes us to shrink back. And would your love and the greatness of your love capture us that we would joyfully, with great privilege, say, Lord, our name's off of it. It's yours. Everything's available. To the praise of your glory, there's a reflection of the greatness of your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. I invite you to stand with me and let's declare together 
where our heart is in response to the greatness of God's grace is it's all available, all His. It's a totally different deal when we see it through the lens of God's grace to us. And so I want to invite you, if we can pray for you in any way this morning, please don't hesitate. If you have a need that you would need us to meet, please let us know. That's why that connect card there is why we have men and women available for prayer. If you're visiting with us, I do hope to have an opportunity to meet you over at the guest reception at the table. This week, we answered the question, who and why? But the encounter also answered the question, how and how much? That's what we'll go back to and answer the question. What's the New Testament say about how and how much? And you might be surprised. So don't let that little cough keep you away uh, next Sunday. It'll be exciting to see what the scripture says to us. Thanks for being here. God bless.